This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. One of the major reasons why people invest in real estate is because of its ability to provide generational wealth for our families. In this episode, we have Stephen Goodman, who will tell us everything that we need to know about succession planning. We'll be going over different succession strategies, why it's important, and how much it costs to set it up. Having a proper succession plan is incredibly important, so be sure to listen all the way to the end to get all of the juicy details. If you're new to this podcast, welcome to the show. If you thought it was informative and engaging, consider subscribing to the podcast. We release episodes every Wednesday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Conventus Lending. Conventus is a hard money lending company based in the Bay Area and has funded over $2 billion over the past few years. We offer competitive rates and amazing service. And for being an Everything Real Estate Investing Show listener, you'll get a discount on your processing fee. So whether you're looking for a bridge loan for your next fix and flip project, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan on an investment property, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get the process started. All right, Steve, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Yes, my name is Steve Goodman. I'm the owner of SHG Planning. It's a consulting firm that specializes in business succession planning, wealth preservation, asset protection planning, and wealth accumulation planning. Exciting. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what is wealth preservation and what is succession planning? Okay, well, succession planning pertains to having a business that ultimately, if something would have happened to you, you died, unfortunately, you got sick, or you wanted to leave the business, it would have to be transferred to somebody. Who's your successor? Sometimes the successor could be your children. Sometimes the successor could be another partner. Sometimes it could be a key employee. Or if none of those exist, then the succession is the sale of the business to an outsider. As far as wealth preservation, there's accumulating your wealth and then there's preserving it. So once you've accumulated wealth, you want to preserve it. You don't want it to be lost due to taxes or lawsuits, creditors. So some of the other areas I get involved in is once people have accumulated wealth, how to make sure they can pass it on to other family members with minimal costs in taxes, litigation, creditors, et cetera. And when it comes to succession planning, what is someone supposed to do to make sure that the next person in line is actually the one who gets to take over? First off, you have to make sure that the person that you think should be your successor, actually wants to be your successor. A common thing, common problem that you find is a lot of times parents may have their child or children in the business and their expectation is that they're going to be the successor in their business and they never really talk to their kids about it. And sometimes the kids are in the business because they almost feel obligated to be in the business or they're having trouble finding themselves and They know they have a job, at least in their family's business, but they may not really want to succeed in the business. 
So you need to know that and make sure that the person that you think is your successor actually is the person that will succeed you in business. What's the next step after that? Once you decide that this is the person I want to be in charge of my business after I pass away and they're willing to take on that role, how do you make sure that that happens? Well, look, I'll ask the question another way. What is it that causes people not to do succession planning? Why does it not get done? And I would say to you that the two most common reasons, anytime somebody has to take time away from working on something today to do something that's for the future, it's always hard to get people to do it because everybody's putting out fires, especially when you're an entrepreneur, a real estate owner, you always have day-to-day issues that occupy your time. So to say, time out, I'm not today going to focus on all these issues and I'm going to plan for something that may happen 10, 15, 20 years from now. Hard to get people to do it. So many times they just push it off and push it off and push it off because they always think I could do it tomorrow. I don't have to do it today. The second reason why a lot of times people don't deal with succession is more of an emotional reason. I have a kid in the business. I have a kid not in the business. I've always treated my kids the same. You know, I got one a car. I got the other one a car. I got somebody a phone. The other one got a phone. And kids always play you against one another as a parent, you know, to make sure, like, where do I stand? And you're always reinforcing to them that you love them the same. And then one day you realize that you have this business and only one of your kids is in the business And you don't really want to give it to both of them because you don't want to put your child that's in the business in conflict with a sibling that knows nothing about the business. But you don't really have enough assets to give to the other child who's not in the business. And you don't know how to treat them fairly. So many times parents don't want to deal with those issues because if they talk about it with their kids, there's probably going to be friction either between them and their kids or amongst their kids. It could affect their relationship with their children and their grandchildren, and they don't want to deal with that. So they figure, you know what, I'm not going to do anything. When I die, they'll have to deal with it at that point in time. And I don't want to upset the apple cart today. So there's other reasons, but I would say those are probably two of the most common reasons people don't address these issues. What happens if you don't have a succession plan and something happens to you? Well, you always have a plan because if you were to die, hypothetically, based on either what your will says or what the state says is how your assets are distributed. If you die, what's called intestate without a will, there's always a plan. The odds are that's not the plan you'd really want to have, but it's the plan that exists from not having a plan. And sometimes the entrepreneur is okay with that because they figure that if something happens to me, my family will know that the reason I left them this way is because I never planned. So I'm only going to be guilty of not having planned. If I actually take the time and really think out what I want to do, and then I die, My family's going to know I actually took the time to think this out. And I can't believe my dad or mom actually came up with this plan after thinking it out. So like, it's almost you're worse off if you thought it out than if you just did nothing. So sometimes that's why people don't do anything, even though that's clearly not, there could be excess taxes, 
from not planning right and family conflict. But sometimes that's just what happens. Can you talk about the whole like probate situation? I know in real estate, they talk about probate sales a lot. And supposedly by going through probate sales, you can get a discount. And why is that the case? Well, probate means is that your assets pass through your will. Every state, Sean, every state's a little different. I'm from New York area, so I'll speak to New York. So a probate means these assets pass through my will. So certain things don't go through probate. So as an example, if you and I were married and we jointly held a property with right of survivorship, it automatically goes to the other person when someone dies. It doesn't go through probate. But if I have an asset in my name alone and my will says I leave it to you, it goes through probate. Some people set up what's called an inter vivos living trust and they move their assets into a trust, which is just like a will, but when it's in a trust, it avoids probate. So there's two reasons people try to avoid probate. One is there's privacy issues. If I go through probate, it becomes public information. So I may not want people to know everything about me. So by having it in trust, I avoid that. And then there's fees that are minimized by not having to go through probate. So sometimes you may hear that some famous person died and they look up and they say, ah, I thought he was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. It only says he's worth like $10 million. That may mean because he passed a lot of assets outside of probate. So nobody knows about him, even though he's much wealthier. He or she is much wealthier than that. Okay. When it comes to real estate investing, again, like I said, people target those who are in probate. They target homes in probate. Why do you think that would be the case? I don't necessarily know why they would target somebody in probate. But what some people do is when somebody dies, they can have tax implications that are a result of them dying. And people know that that's going to be a forced sale situation because they need liquidity and they need to come up with money. And obviously, in a negotiation, if you know you're the buyer and my estate is the seller and you estate needs to sell this asset, you're in a pretty good bargaining position and you're probably going to get a good deal. So is it like when someone passes away, they owe maybe a million dollars in taxes because they have such a huge estate and the only asset they have is this big piece of real estate. And so to pay that $1 million, they have to sell the, the real estate to pay the taxes. Yeah, either one of three things are going to happen. The government allows you in certain circumstances to pay the taxes over a period of time. So you may go that route. The second is they could go out and take out a mortgage on the property, assuming that there's enough equity to do that. And they don't have to sell the property to come up with the money. But if at the end of the day, the beneficiary of the estate doesn't really want to be in the real estate business or they don't want to own that asset or they left it to three kids and they're going to kill each other over how to manage the asset and they don't want to be in conflict and they want to sell it, then, of course, it puts your estate in a difficult situation. What happens if this property had a mortgage on it and then the the owner passed away? Do the kids get to just, or the inheritors, do they get to just take over that mortgage or do they have to create their own, get a mortgage for themselves? 
No, you would inherit the mortgage. You may have to notify the bank the person died and make them aware of it, but you're not going to have to go out and refinance it because of the fact that somebody died. One of the advantages, Sean, you get when somebody dies, if it's not, I'm not talking about a residential piece of real estate, if it's more investment purpose, is it's very likely that the owner has depreciated a lot of that asset over their lifetime, and they may not even have any more depreciation available. When you die, you get what's called the step up in basis. So let's use a hypothetical. I have a $5 million property. I've owned it for a long time. I've almost fully depreciated it. When I die, my kids inherit it. They get a a new step up in basis. Let's say it's worth $5 million. So their new basis becomes $5 million. And now the kids have the ability to redepreciate that asset that they wouldn't have if they had to take over the basis of the person who died. Makes sense. And can we talk about the process for succession planning? Like, let's say someone wants to make sure that everything is lined up. What do they do? Well, let's assume it's a family situation where it's father or mother, kid or kids in the business. They have to work with their CPA, some tax lawyer, generally it would be a corporate or a state tax lawyer, a person like myself who consults and works with this team. They may need a financial advisor, somebody who's managing their money. It's a team working together and there's various options. It would take us a lot longer than the time we have to go through all the different ways it could be done. But some examples would be, does mom and dad want to start giving away some of the property today? So let's say I own an LLC that owns a couple of pieces of real estate. And right now I own 100% of it. I could give minority interest, like limited partnership interest in the LLC to my children and start moving those assets out of my estate. And let's say the real estate's worth $10 million. But because I'm giving away a limited partnership interest, picture it this way, Sean. If I own an LLC with $10 million property in it, and you're my son, and I give you a 5% limited partnership interest in the real estate. So theoretically, it should be worth a half a million dollars, 5% of $10 million. You could never sell that. Who's going to buy it from you? Who's going to buy a 5% interest in an LLC knowing somebody else owns the other 95%? So it doesn't really have any marketable value. So when I give it to you, I could value it much less than that 500000 because it's not really marketable. So a lot of times when people are doing succession planning, they're giving away assets to the next generation to move assets out of their estate, and they do it at discounted values through gifting, selling. There's things called grats, sales to defective trust. There's a lot of sophisticated techniques that people use, especially very wealthy people. So that's part of the succession. Like, when do I do this? Do I do it today while I'm alive so that I get this out of my estate? Do I wait till when I die? And in lieu of leaving it to my spouse, I leave it to my kids. Do I pass it to my spouse? And then when we're both not here, we leave it to the kids. So you have to go through all the different scenarios. And then do I have one kid I'm giving it to? Do I have two children? If I give it to one, then what am I doing for my other kids so that 
they don't feel like they were disinherited. If I give it to two kids, well, think about it. Today, I make all the decisions. If tomorrow, Sean, I leave it to you and your sister, 50-50, now nobody's in charge. So every decision requires you and your sister to get together and say, do we want to build something on this property? Do we want to take out a mortgage? Do we want to sell it? So sometimes you have to put provisions in as to how you break a deadlock. If the two of you don't get along, how do you make a decision? Or maybe there's three kids and you, a brother and a sister, and your brother and sister team up against you and they control everything and they make all the decisions and you don't really have any say. Well, how do I protect you so that my two other kids can't take advantage of you But at the same time, I don't want to make it that every decision requires three people to agree, and thus you can't really operate the real estate property in the business. Is that helpful? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's where these conversations come up when they talk to you, when they consult, and they see what is the most important part of the succession planning process. And how long does this whole thing take? Like, if I want to create a will, uh, create some documentation that says this is how everything's going to go. How long does this whole process take? Usually it's dictated by the frequency of meetings and the time frame between meetings that the client is willing to allow. So if somebody's like, I got to get this done and I'm going to take the next month and I'm going to really do all of this, other than they may have to get an appraisal on their property to do it right. And that could take a while, you know, especially have multiple properties and you're valuing them and then you're valuing minority interests in a property. Even if the founder is gung ho to get it done, that's probably going to be one of the things that drags it out. Sometimes the lawyer getting the work done gets dragged out. So usually even in like the most opportune scenario where everybody's functioning at maximum efficiency, it very rarely gets done in less than a couple of months. I would say it could take years to get done, you know, like where somebody just can't make a decision or they just keep postponing meetings and they keep changing their mind. I've worked on situations where it could take a couple of years to get playing. Sometimes it never gets done because The person just never keeps the momentum and keeps focus. But if I said on average, it's probably three to nine month period of time, six months, probably the average to go through this kind of process. I would say that's probably a reasonable number. If someone goes through the whole process and then later in the future decides to change their mind, are they able to do it? And if so, how long does that take and what's the process for that? Well, the answer is, Many of the things they could change. You could change your will anytime. You could do a a new will every day. Unfortunately, there are times that a husband and wife go in to see a lawyer and they do a will. And then one of them goes to another lawyer and redoes their will without the other one knowing. And they don't even know the other one has a different will. So, I mean, you could literally do a will every day if you wanted to. Revocable trusts, trusts that are not irrevocable, like I mentioned before, like living trust, again, you could change that constantly. Sometimes if you make gifts into irrevocable trust, the trust really can't be changed. But sometimes you have the ability 
to sell the assets in that trust to another trust. So as long as everybody's on the same page, you could make changes. But if you put things into a trust for the benefit of some of your children, and then you decide, ah, I don't like my son or daughter today, and I want to move it to another trust, the trustee, who's a fiduciary, has litigation risk. Because if I put something in one trust that's benefiting all three of my kids, and now I want to move it to another trust just for the benefit of two of my kids, if that third child ever found out that something was in a trust for them and got moved out and they didn't get anything for it, that could lead to litigation. So the trustee as a fiduciary, you have to a, pick the right person and that person has to understand what risk they're taking if they do things like that. So some of the things that you do are not that easy to unwind, but a lot of it can be. And as far as how long it takes, Usually it takes less time to update a plan than it does to initiate a plan because you've kind of been through it already. But again, it still could take a couple of months to do that. It's interesting that you said that someone could have a new will every other day, right? It's so easy to just create a new will with new directions. How does like the state or whoever is you know, looking at the will know that this is the latest version of the will? Well, because when you do a will, you're claiming it's your last will and testament, and it's going to be dated and signed at a certain point. So as an example, let's say you're my lawyer, Sean. I go into the office and I do a will, and you put it in your vault. From your perspective, that's my will. I mean, people don't normally go the next day. So let's say a year later, I meet some guy and he introduces me to a different lawyer, and I go and I do a new will with that lawyer. You really should. I think this is wrong. I think a lawyer should have to report to the prior lawyer that their will is no longer valid, but that's not how it works. It certainly doesn't work that way in New York. So basically, the first lawyer thinks he has the last will. Obviously, the way you know which one is the last will is by the date. If the will I did with you is in 2020 and the will I did with the other guys in 2021, well, obviously... That's the last will, unless somebody shows that he did another will after that will. And that's why you have will contests and people die and people claim, oh, I have the last will. It becomes a big litigation. But it's pretty obvious which is the last will by which has been dated at the latest date. Yeah, because I mean, if someone has a will, like you said, they usually hold on to it themselves. But like, what if they're in these different law firms? Do the law firms come together when the person dies? They get notified and say, oh, I have his will here. Come check this out. Well, what happens sometimes is that's another problem to this process is not only is it doing all your documents and doing your planning, but is there an individual? Many times that could be somebody like myself. Is there an individual that knows everything like they know which is the last will? Where are all the documents? How much life insurance did the person have? Where are all the policies? You know, where is everything? You know, is there instructions laid out? Like I know for myself, I've laid out everything to not only my wife, but to the people who are going to be trustees and executors when I'm not here. They know all my assets, where everything is, all my insurance policies, all my documents, who my lawyer is, who my accountant is. Like most people don't do that. So even if you take the time to do some of this, but nobody really knows where everything is. 
someone dies, everybody's starting to look for everything. It could be a disaster, even if he actually did some of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure that happens if someone is relatively young or maybe just retired and isn't like thinking they're going to pass away tomorrow and then something happens and now the family has to scramble to find everything. You know, like my uncle, he passed away very suddenly from an accident and the family had to go find his passwords. They had to guess his passwords for all of his accounts. And it's hard because he didn't expect to pass away so soon, right? Look, unfortunately, one of the advantages of not dying suddenly is you're given the opportunity to take care of your affairs before you die. But, you know, like you said, you could be in a car accident, an airplane, someone could hit you, run you over, or you could just have a heart attack one day and just die. So that's the problem. When it gets back, Sean, what I said earlier, that like getting people to prepare for the future and give away time for today. Now, maybe because of COVID and, you know, unfortunately, you know, almost 200,000 people have died in this country and who knows how many more are going to die. Or there may be more people who are taking it seriously and saying, I got, I should get my act in in order because of things like this, probably a little bit more than normal, but still most people think, oh, it's not going to happen to me. And I'm not going to deal with it. And sometimes it happens to you. And if you don't plan, your family's going to have a, you know, a mess. Exactly. What are the costs associated with this whole process? If you can give me like an order of magnitude or a ballpark range. Well, there's different costs. So let's say you have a lawyer. Depends on how elaborate your estate planning is. You know, people who are not that wealthy that go to a pretty simple lawyer for a simple will. It could cost you like $1,000 to do something like that. As you go up and you get, let's say, somebody who is worth millions of dollars and they need to go to a lawyer that's a specialist in this and they're doing sophisticated planning, you know, it could cost you $10,000 to $30,000, dollars $50,000. It can cost more than that, depending how wealthy you are and how how much planning you're doing. But I would say... Five to $20,000 in that range is probably a good ballpark for fairly wealthy people to do a lot of their planning. Then, you know, you have your CPA involved, so they're going to charge you something for their time. You have many times you need to do appraisals. Appraisals could cost tens of thousands of dollars to do appraisals, depending on if it's real estate and you have multiple properties, it could cost you a couple of thousand dollars a property. So you can cost somebody twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars to appraise 10, 15 properties for purposes of valuation and gifting. A person like myself could charge somebody thousands of dollars for part of the planning, depending how elaborate it is. And then you have things like life insurance. A lot of people buy life insurance A, to protect their family, B, to provide liquidity, to pay taxes, or sometimes, Sean, if I'm leaving you my business, but I want to leave something to my daughter, your sister, and I don't have assets, maybe I'm going to buy a couple of million dollar insurance policy and have the beneficiary be a trust for the benefit of my daughter as a way to kind of try to give her something in return for what she's not getting because you're getting the real estate. 
And that could cost you tens of thousands of dollars, depending how old you are and how much insurance you're buying. So that's another reason why, Sean, people don't do this because they're like, oh, my God, I got to pay my lawyer. I got to pay my accountant. I got to consult. I got to do valuations. I got to buy insurance. It's going to cost me tens of thousands of dollars. And I got to give up time to do this when I'm busy. So they just put it off and put it off, put off. And then those costs pale in comparison to the the extra taxes and litigation that happen when you don't do those things. You pass away and you don't plan for it. Why would you recommend someone to start seriously considering succession planning? And what has your typical client profile looked like? Well, most of my clients are fairly affluent, you know, worth millions of dollars. And most of them have, not all, but a lot of them have family involved. So they're not all in the real estate business. I have, you know, many clients in the real estate business, but, you know, many of them own operating companies. They could be an electrical contractor, a distributor, a manufacturer. So that's, you know, typically the profile of the kind of clients I'm dealing with. You know, people who are going to have either difficult decisions to make or substantial tax issues in doing planning are generally the kinds of people that I'm advising. Do you have like a age range for my listeners? Because I feel like some of will listen and be like, I'm not sure if this is for me right now. Look, it's interesting. I would say that, especially since you're in the Bay Area and you have a lot of people, Silicon Valley, there's a lot of very, very, very wealthy young people. I mean, obviously, you know, people who are 30 years old and they're single, no children, for them to think about these kind of things, it's just not generally happening. But, you know, as they get a little older and they have a family, you know, they have a wife and they have kids and they're starting to accumulate millions and millions of dollars from either stock options or stock in companies or they sell a company or they're buying real estate or accumulating investments. Again, they're young, so they don't think these things are going to happen to them. And they're generally not for somebody who's young, but you never know. Um, So, you know. I work with plenty of like 30, 40 year olds that are very wealthy, helping them on their planning. Obviously, a higher percentage of older people are my clients because, A, they're generally wealthier and they see this, you know, they don't have to look so far into the future to see that these things could happen. They have friends that have passed away. They've had relatives and they see the kind of disasters that could occur. But I would say, Younger people, once they have a family, they're married, they have kids, and they've built up sizable wealth, certainly are people that I help and advise. Now, I remember you were talking earlier about wealth preservation, and you were talking about some strategies about how like, if you can give out 5% of a $10 million portfolio through an LLC, it's worth less because you know no one's going to buy 5% of this LLC. What other wealth preservation strategies do you have that you can share with us today? Well, some of wealth preservation is asset protection. I think that one of the fears that anybody could have, including a 30-year-old person, no differently is if I get sued by somebody. When people know people have money, the risk of getting sued for something increases, especially when you have real estate, even though you have certain types of insurance policies. So a lot of the stuff that we do looks at that. That's why people use trusts a lot. You know, you have LLCs that give you certain layers of protection and you put things in trust, you know, especially when you're making gifts to your children 
and you're concerned they could get divorced at some point in time. So I don't want it getting into the hands of my daughter-in-law, my son-in-law. And, and sometimes getting a prenup is easier said than done. A lot of times a parent says, I want you to get a prenup. And the person says, my future wife's not going to marry me if I ask her to do a prenup. And I love her and I want to marry her. And then like, okay, well, then I'm not going to give you anything. You know, and then day one of the marriage, the daughter-in-law hates the father-in-law because they know the father-in-law didn't want to, you know, wanted to have a prenup. So some of the ways you protect that is you make gifts or when you die, you leave things in trust so they don't go outright. So if I give it to you in some kind of trust and your spouse says, well, well, why don't we sell it? Or, you know, why don't we buy something together? You say, I don't have any control over it. It's not in my name. It was given to me in a trust. My parents picked, you know, their accountant or their lawyer or me, or some advisor as trustee, and I don't have any say over it. So it's similar to like when somebody dies and they leave things in trust for their spouse. So let's use a hypothetical, Sean. I'm married. I have a wife. I have a nice estate. I die. I leave it outright to my wife. She gets remarried. The individual tries to convince her, well, why don't we buy a house? And then he wants it in a joint name. And she's taken assets that were left to her. And somehow over time, due to love, these things get commingled. Well, my goal is to protect my wife. And I want those assets to go to my kids. I don't want it to go to her second husband or second wife. So if it goes in trust, and then the individual says to my wife, after I'm not here, let's do these things. All she has to do is say, you know, honey, I love you, but I don't have any control over this. You know, my husband was a sophisticated person. And when he died, he left this in trust. And the lawyer is the trustee. And the lawyer knows there's no way the lawyer is going to agree for me to take things out of this trust so I could put it in, in an asset with you. That's exactly why my husband did this. So and then the person at some point just gives up because they know, like, I'm not going to be able to do these things. My wife is not in control. Sometimes you want to take that situation away from the beneficiary by tying their hands. And it's really helping them and protecting them. But they have a good excuse that it's out of their control. You follow me, Sean? So a lot of wealth preservation is making sure that what you've accumulated not just doesn't go to pay taxes, but doesn't go to litigation, doesn't go to ex-spouses. That's what causes a lot of the problems. So can you clarify a little bit about how trust funds work? Like even after the person passes away, the beneficiary can't just take everything out of the trust fund and do whatever they want with it. They need to have a third party like a proof. Yeah, a trust owns the assets. So the owner and beneficiary of the piece of real estate, let's say it's an LLC. So an LLC owns the real estate, but the LLC is owned in the trust. So it's like a couple of layers. There's a property, the LLC, the trust. So the actual owner of the property, even though the LLC is the owner, the trust owns the LLC. So the ultimate owner is the trust. So the trust dictates things. So I could do a trust that says when I die, my wife could get some of the income from the trust, but the trust asset stays in the trust. And then when she dies, 
we leave it in trust for our children, maybe forever. It could be in trust for their whole life or maybe until they're 50 years old. So the trust document is what dictates control over the asset. And the trustee, which is why the trustee is so important, you have to pick someone that you trust and that you know is going to follow your wishes. The trustee then makes those decisions. Now, sometimes, like I know I have trust that I've given the trustee discretion because I don't want to tie their hands up. I don't know everything that could happen in the future. So I've written a letter to my trustees stating, right now, this is my wishes. But, you know, I could have it that give it equally to my two kids. Well, what happens after I die if one of my kids is in a litigation where they're getting sued or they're in a divorce and their spouse is suing them? And I was going to let the trustee have the discretion to make distributions to my kids. He knows I'm not making a distribution to that kid now because anything I distribute to them could get into the hands of their spouse that's suing them or a creditor. So you got to make sure you give them a certain level of discretion of how to do those things. Is that clear? Okay. That's very interesting. Are there any other wealth preservation techniques that you suggest people should look into? Because I know you're definitely dealing with high net worth individuals. From what I understand, as long as each person doesn't give or what's called like leave inheritance worth more than like a million dollars per person, then there's actually no inheritance tax. Do you think you can clarify that a little bit? Federally, every state's different. Federally, the exemption is now very, very high. It's like $11.5 million a person. So theoretically, you can leave up to $23 million to your children without a federal estate tax. New York state has lower levels. Every state's different. But that law stays in effect until 2026. And then it reverts back to where it was before, which was about, call it $5 million per person, a total of 10. If Joe Biden got elected and the Democrats controlled the Senate and the House, they're going to probably revert it back to like that lower level. That's what happens. You just don't know when Democrats are in power, they tend to have lower exemptions. When Republicans are in power, they're higher exemptions. It's just that's how it is. So today, at this moment, for federal purposes, you could be very, very wealthy and still not have an estate tax. You know, you could be worth 25-ish million dollars roughly and not have an estate tax. But who knows what that's going to be in the future. Wealth preservation is usually a combination of minimizing taxes minimizing litigation, minimizing assets going in the event of a divorce, and also how you manage your assets to not lose money. And hopefully the assets grow and they don't go down in value. In a lot of states, annuities and life insurance are a great asset protection planning technique because a lot of times money that's inside of an insurance policy or annuity is not subject to the claims of creditors in a lot of states. So if you had money in municipal bonds, that could be subject to the claims of creditors. But if it's in an annuity and insurance, it may not. So sometimes people move their assets into different investment vehicles that have better asset protection and wealth preservation attached to it. Now, for that, another million, that's like their entire estate, right? So it's like broken up for all the inheritors. It's not 11 million for this person, 11 million for this person. 
No, it's total. It's total. So if, make up a number. If I'm worth $50 million and I could leave, let's make it simple and call it $25 million free of tax. It's not like I could leave $25 million to one kid or $25 million to another kid. It's 25 in total. So let's say I leave $25 million to each of you. I have two kids. Then roughly half of that's going to be subject to state taxes at roughly a 40% federal rate. It could be like 50 with state inheritance taxes. So if somebody's worth 50 million and let's call it 25 million roughly is free of taxes, on the other 25 million, you could have about a 12 and a half million dollar estate tax. And that's where you need liquidity. So you either have to liquidate assets or have life insurance to provide the liquidity. A lot of people buy insurance to provide the liquidity to pay the taxes. And how does that, like you said, it's, you know, it's 11.5 per person, 23 million total. How does it work? You know, because spouses often, like they don't die at the same time. So how does that get passed down? You could leave everything to your spouse without estate taxes. So I could be worth a billion dollars. I could be Bill Gates and leave everything to Melinda Gates when I die. And there's no estate taxes. Estate taxes only occur when it goes to the next generation. So generally, it's a little too complicated. We don't have enough time for it. But generally, when you do proper planning, you can leave things to your spouse in trust and use up your 11 and a half ish million dollar exemption. And then when she dies, she has 11 and a half. So when it goes to the kids, you're able to use both of them, even though they didn't die at the same time. Got it. Is that typically what people do? They don't just wait for them to Yeah, 100%. When you make gifts while you're alive. So let's say I gave away 10 million when I'm alive, because I could do that. Then I only have the 23 million minus the 10 I gave away, I only have 13 left when I die. So you can't give away every 20 million and then have another 20 million when you die. It's either while you're alive or when you die, whatever you've given away while you're alive gets subtracted from what's left when you die. I know this is kind of a niche scenario, but let's imagine someone is doing okay in life. They maybe have 5 million or so to give to the kids. They pass away and then the wife ends up becoming very successful. And then maybe accumulates fifteen million. Is she able to give all that and kind of use up that twenty-three million in total, or is it only like he died? He only had five million at the time. So there's a provision called portability. So if somebody doesn't use their full exemption amount, let's call eleven and a half, because maybe they don't have that in assets, then the second spouse is able to utilize what the other person never did on top of what they have and combine it. But in your scenario, it would work because together they had 20. Right. But if he had five and she has 50, then she could use the call of five or six that he didn't use plus her 11. But everything above that is going to be subject to estate taxes. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for clarifying that for me. I mean, this has been a super interesting episode. I don't know anything about succession planning or wealth preservation. So it's very, very enlightening. Are there any like common mistakes that you see people doing with regards to wealth preservation and succession planning? A million things. We've kind of talked about some of them. Number one is not plan. They just never get around to it. There's people who die. They don't even have a will and they're worth a lot of money. So not planning or, or doing a will when your kids are babies and never taking the time to relook at it. I mean, I have friends I go to dinner with that are successful people. They don't even have a will. I haven't done it in 20 years. And I'm like, I say, are you like a knucklehead? Like, what's wrong with you? 
You know what I'm saying? It's like, how could you? And they just don't think they're going to die and they don't want to deal with it. And they don't want to pay the lawyer. So they just don't do it. You know, so not having a will, not doing planning for a long time, giving things outright or leaving things outright to your kids or your spouse when during your lifetime or when you die and not tying it up in trust, not thinking about conflict between your kids or your kids. Like, like, let's say I have a business and I own the real estate, Sean, that the business is in. I own two entities. I have one corporation that owns the business, another one that owns the real estate. I own it all. So what I pay in rent is meaningless because I'm paying rent to myself. But then I die and I leave my wife the real estate, but I leave my kids the business. And now my kids aren't really paying fair market value and rent to my wife because I didn't care when I owned both of them. I just had enough rent to cover my mortgage and my taxes and expenses. But now my wife's relying on that rent to live. So she's going to now start fighting with her kids over like, you got to pay me more rent because if I rented this to a stranger, I'd get twice as much in rent as you're paying me. And the kids are like, I'm not paying you twice as much. The business can't afford it. So now dad put mom and her kids in a position where they're fighting each other. Like that's the kind of stuff that, ha- or I give you Sean the real estate and I give your sister the business. And now you two guys are fighting each other over what kind of rent to pay. So it's all of those things is what causes taxes and lawsuits and fighting and stuff like that. Yeah. Basically the most common mistake when it comes to succession planning and wealth preservation is failure to plan accordingly. 100%. Awesome. Well, Steve, this has been a very great episode. How can people get in contact with you? Okay. Well, first off, if they go to stephengoodman.biz, I have a book that I've written on business succession planning, which any of you guests that go there will could download it for free. I also have a website, shgplanning.com, whereby I've written like 60 articles that are on in my blog on all different subjects, many that we didn't cover today. My email address is sgoodman at shgplanning.com. And especially today in the COVID world where people are not in their office all the time, my cell number 516-297-7390 is the best way to reach me. And Sean, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I hope your audience found it interesting. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. And I definitely learned a lot from this as well. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You as well, Sean. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review to get updated when the latest episode comes out. A brief summary of this podcast can be found in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.